0: I'm going to begin with uh, an unusual question for you tonight. What is your favorite book title in the Bible? I'm not asking you what is your favorite book in the Bible. I'm asking you what is your favorite book title in the Bible. I know that's a little strange. Maybe only a preacher would ask such a question. But there's one book in the Bible, to me anyway, and the name is perfect, right? The name is, is, is perfect. Obviously, they're all perfect. But this one is perfect. And it's, it, the name of the, of the book is not only perfect, the place where it resides in Scripture, in the canon, is perfect. So, I'll let you think about that for a few minutes and we'll come back to that. As I've been mentioning to you, The last few months, the young adults spent the the semester studying through Francis Chan's book entitled Crazy Love. Um, We got into chapter four. I think it was probably the most challenging chapter in the book. We spent three weeks on it. It's entitled Profiles of the Lukewarm. So we got a little hung up on that one. Early in the chapter, Chan says, or asks... Has your relationship with Jesus actually changed the way that you live? I mean, this is one way we can define true Christianity. If there's been no change, you haven't met Him yet. I think this is clear from Scripture. Again, has your relationship with Jesus actually changed the way you live? And then he spends the rest of the chapter describing what lukewarm Christianity looks like. So I'm just going to share a few of the bullet points with you. He says, the lukewarm, they attend church regularly merely because they know they should and it's expected of them. They tend to choose in their lives what's popular over what's right. They don't really want to be saved from their sin, only from the penalty of their sin. The lukewarm, they are moved by stories about people who radically obey Jesus, but they never do. The lukewarm rarely ever share their faith. They gauge their goodness by comparing themselves with a fallen and secular world. The lukewarm say they love Jesus, but they never surrender to Him as Lord. The lukewarm love others, but do not seek to love others as much as they love themselves. The lukewarm, they put limits on how much time, money, and energy they are willing to give to Jesus Christ and His church. The lukewarm think about life on earth way more than eternity. The lukewarm love their luxuries and comforts and rarely consider giving as much as possible. To the work of the Lord. The lukewarm always play it safe. They are slaves to the God of control. And lastly, the lukewarm do not live by faith. They structure their lives so they never have to. So, as I've shared with you several times, Francis Chan says, I think my favorite line in the book is this, there's something wrong when our lives make sense to unbelievers. I'll say it again. There's something wrong when our lives make sense to unbelievers. I think we could say it this way. Everything's wrong if we claim to be a Christian and our life makes sense to the unbeliever. How can our lives make sense to someone who's never met God? How could that be possible? They don't believe. They don't know Him. How could our life look just like theirs? Of course, if we read the New Testament, we understand. That's not possible. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5.17 If any man is in Christ, he is someone... I know you know this verse. He is brand new. He is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new things have come. Let me ask you, have the new things come? This is what happens. (laughs) This is what happens when we meet Jesus. The new things come. The new things come. And He has stolen our affections. And as Charles Spurgeon said, we are spoiled for this world. We can't love this world anymore. We've met the Lord. And He's awesome. So that brings me back to my original question What's your favorite book title in the Bible? I know it's weird yeah I get paid the big money to think about this stuff right I get paid big money to come up with this stuff my answer would be and I bet if you thought about it very long you you would you would figure it out my answer would be the book of acts what's the full name of the book of acts someone tell me acts of the apostles and isn't it interesting right after the Gospels which reveal the the beauty and the work and the miracles and the life, the incarnation, the the crucifixion and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, the the Gospels that chronicle the the acts of Jesus, the very next book is entitled The Acts of My People. The Acts of God's People. The Acts of the Apostles. Beloved, if you've met Jesus Christ (laughs) You can't help but act, right? You you can't be a secret agent Christian. You you have to live this. It's too big. It's too big to sit on it. You can't do it. It's impossible. It's impossible. So I think it's perfect. Right after the gospels comes this great book, The Acts of His People. And I want to I want to clarify it. It's not the warm, fuzzy feelings of his people. It's not the religious deliberations of His people. It's not the good intentions of His people. It's not the church goings of His people. It's the acts of His people in the world. The acts of His people in the world. And as you know, God's people turn the world upside down. One thing you you learn from reading Acts is that encountering Jesus Christ, it changes the way people live. And oh yeah, it changes the way people die. This is one thing we've been circling in our study of 1 Peter. You guys know it. All but one apostle was martyred. John was not. But all the other apostles were martyred. It not only changed the way they lived, it changed the way they died. They died. And when we read Acts, we understand that lukewarm Christianity is no Christianity at all. In fact, it's an oxymoron. If we've really met Jesus, Acts are not only unavoidable, they are irrepressible. There's this desire to honor Jesus in our life. There's this desire to obey Him, to bring Him glory, to be His witness. Again, I think this is one of the unspoken truths of 1 Peter. I think it's written between every line. God is saying real believers, they really believe, they really obey, they, they really stand, they really give a witness out in the world. God is saying this is what my people do. My people act. They act. They don't merely sit in church. Sitting in church is good. You need to come to church. But that can't be the sum and substance of your Christianity. God says, My people act on who I am and what I've done. It's essentially what God's been saying to us all the way through 1 Peter. God says, My people aren't surprised when it gets hard, when the persecution comes and when the suffering comes. They're not surprised. Someone tell me, what are we? We're ready. We're ready. We know it's coming. He's told us it's coming. We know it's coming. So we are ready. God says, my people don't look at the trial. We look, someone tell me, through it. We look through it. We see the glory of God through it. We see all eternity through it. My people don't whine in the ordeal. They worship. My people don't fall away in the midst of suffering. They trust they trust me this is what we've been learning in first peter we know it's true god's word tells us that it's true peter has hammered this truth home uh, over and over again christians are 100% certain to suffer in this life because they're christians what's the other truth We are 100% certain to meet Jesus in that suffering. He will come to us. He will come to us in the persecution and in the suffering. The apostles, man, they, they knew that, that hard obedience was, was a good investment. It was a good investment. It was, it was a good use of their life. Why? Because it's always a God encounter. I know I've said it a thousand times in this series. It's a God encounter. God comes to His people. He never doesn't come to His people. His apostles, they couldn't be lukewarm about this great God and what He's done and this great salvation. They simply couldn't be lukewarm about it. They couldn't live small anymore. They couldn't live like the world anymore. It's just not interesting enough. And if you're a maturing Christian, you understand that statement. It's just not, the world's just not that interesting as compared to the Lord Jesus Christ. As we've gone through this great epistle, I have felt some tension all the way through uh, with respect to the level of persecution talked about in this book and the level of persecution that most of us are likely to ever encounter Many of us live in parts of the world where physical persecution or martyrdom are simply not a possibility. Uh, It's just simply not a real threat. And we praise God for that. But I felt this tension in the book. But in my background reading this week, I came across a great quote by John Piper and I just want to share it with you. He he talks about this tension. Those of us who live in, in, in very, very safe cultures and we're not threatened at all, Piper says this, "...to think about your own death for Jesus will help you live for Jesus as you should." I want to read it again. "...to think about your own death for Jesus will help you live for Jesus as you should." He continues, "...a true Christian must be willing to say, I will not deny Christ even if it costs my life." But as soon as we say that, it makes a whole lot of things in our lives look ridiculous. For example, I'll die for you, Jesus, but I really don't have any time or interest in studying Your Word. I'll die for you, Jesus, but I really don't have any time or interest in in spending uh, extended times of prayer with You. I'll die for you, Jesus, but I I can't witness to my friend at work or at the university. I'll die for you, Jesus, but I can't give more than 10% of my income to your church. I really like what Piper's saying. He continues, "One of the best ways to bring Christ-honoring changes to your life is to measure your life by, uh, to measure your, your way of life, by your willingness to die for Christ. I butchered it, so I'll read it again. One of the best ways to bring Christ-honoring changes to your life is to measure your way of life, by your willingness to die for Jesus. I think that's. Beloved, I think that's, that's hugely important. Karen and I were talking about it the other day. You just have to do that transaction in your mind and in your heart. And we're going to talk in a few minutes about when that pressure comes. Can't, could we actually do that? Could we really do it? Or is it all theoretical? As we've learned in our study of First Peter, the Bible is clear. Christians will suffer for being Christians. It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when. So how do we prepare ourselves for this promised persecution? Whether it be physical, psychological, emotional, social, familial. What does God say? Someone tell me. Verse 12. How do we prepare ourselves? What does He say? Right there at the beginning of verse 12. What's the first thing He says? Don't be surprised. It's what we've been talking about all the way through 1 Peter. I've already mentioned it it to you once. We are not surprised. We are surprised ready we expect persecution we expect it we expect it and so when it comes we are not surprised we've not believed the false gospel that is so prevalent in these last days that God's primary concern is that we experience temporal health wealth and prosperity you know this false gospel that I mentioned at least once a quarter You know, we've actually read our Bibles. We know what they say. Real Christians will suffer. They will. I just did a brief survey. It's not exhaustive. These are all scriptural words. God says, My people, they will suffer afflictions, hardships, distresses, trials, difficulties, rejection, poverty, loss, pain, suffering, sorrow, sickness, sickness, Tribulations, slanders, insults, dangers, false accusations, persecutions, imprisonments, beatings, and, and yes, martyrdom. This is what God promises to His people. You know, you, have, you listen to some of these guys and you go, man, have you ever read the Bible at all? Have you ever read it all the way through? God is very clear. His primary concern is not our health, wealth, and prosperity. His primary concern is to bring us into conformity with His Son. And that we would be what we're supposed to be in the world. A light in the world. A witness in the world. That's God's... You know, as I've told you before, everything's better in heaven. You know, He's only left us here. Everything's better. It would be better to go. He's left us here for one reason. To be a light. And to be the salt... God says our trials are necessary. You remember, you remember what the Lord said back over in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, He says they're necessary. As we've been seeing in the series, the trial is God sent. It is for our testing. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. I'm not going to redevelop that whole point, but let me just read that to you. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. In this you greatly rejoice, he says. That is, in the great salvation that God has given us. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, God says it's necessary. Do you have a problem with it? Talk to God about it. He says it's necessary. You have been distressed by various trials that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of, of Jesus. God says our trials are necessary, beloved. Do you have a problem with it? Is, isn't that enough for you that God says it's necessary? Is, isn't that enough? God says it's necessary for the establishment of your faith. Do we really need to interrogate God and question God and whine to God about the what and the why? Hasn't He told us about the what and the why? It's because it's necessary to establish your faith and to bring you into conformity with Jesus. God says it's necessary. Isn't that enough for you? Beloved, I pray it is. I pray when the hard day comes, you remember God says it's necessary and that it's enough for you that God has said it. And it's enough for you that Romans 8.28 is always true. The trial, beloved, is not due to God's neglect. It is due to God's plan. This is what we've been talking about all the way through the book. That is biblical theology. We believe it. And when the ordeal comes, we live it. And as the text says there, we don't act as though some strange thing were happening to us. We knew it was coming. We're ready for it. We trust the Lord in the midst of it. So that's how Christians deal with hard things. We're not deceived by cheap, pseudo-counterfeit theology that's put out there by false teachers. We know our Bibles. We know our God. And when the trial comes, when the persecution comes, we are ready God says, my people are not surprised. And then in verse 13, He says, my people are not only not surprised, what does He say in verse 13? What do we do? We what? We rejoice. Do you rejoice? <laughs> Let me ask you, do you rejoice when the trial comes, beloved? God says, my people rejoice. Now how is that possible? There's only one way. As we talked about last week, if we're immersed in the Bible and we understand what God has said, if we know our God, we must know our God. We must think God's thoughts or we won't think rightly about the trial. If we don't know First we Peter, we're never going to think rightly about the persecution and the trial that comes to us. We rejoice because God has told us to. And because we know He will bring us through it and because we see all the way through the trial. We see His promise is good. And we trust Him. We trust Him. We understand what Paul says, 2 Corinthians 4.17. I know I've mentioned this verse probably five times throughout this series, but I can't help it. The Spirit keeps taking me back to it. Paul says these are momentary light afflictions. Momentary. And they're light. And we all know how much Paul suffered. And what? They're producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. The Christian has weighed it out. The Christian has weighed it out. Temporal loss is nothing compared to eternal gain, right? Can you do the math? No, you really can't because we're talking about eternity. What you lose here is temporal. It's finite. What we gain there is forever. And it's infinite, beloved. The Christian weighs it out. This is what Paul's done. He's weighed it out. He said, man, this is nothing. Give me 39 more lashes. 2 Corinthians four seventeen. So what does this phrase mean in verse 13? To share in the sufferings of Jesus simply. It means that we suffer for His name. We suffer for being a Christian. These are specific uh, to persecution. That's what the phrase means. Verse 14, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Let me drop down to verse 16. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name, let him glorify God. If we suffer for His name, we are. What does that word blessed mean? What does that word blessed mean? What does it mean? We are happy. We are happy. remember that text in Acts chapter 4 where Peter and all... And I guess... All the apostles, I'm not exactly sure from the context, but they were flogged. They were all given 39 lashes. And do you remember what they said when after, after the beating? They were what? Rejoicing because they had been what? Counted worthy. They had been counted worthy to suffer for his name. Beloved, don't run from persecution. Stand and give a witness. A loving witness. Give a loving witness. Give a loving witness. It's what God's called us to do. He said, I'll fill you up so much with my presence in your life. When you stand and give a witness, it won't matter what the persecution's like. I'll fill you up so much. Listen, if you've met Jesus Christ and you understand what He says about Himself, He is the eternal, infinite God. He, you understand He can fill up your heart. And He'll fill it up for a billion eternities. This is why His people can rejoice in the face of persecution. When the trial comes, when the upheaval comes into our lives, it is, we've been saying it all the way through 1 Peter, it's our evangelism. It's our platform. We stand there and we love the persecutor. We're instructed to love the persecutor. And as we learned earlier, 1 Peter, we give a blessing and we give a witness. That's it. Basta. That's all you have to do. That's your job description. That's it. Give a blessing. Give a witness. That's your job. That's why we're still walking around on the planet. The world sees us when in the midst of a trial... They, and they see us just trusting in the sovereign purposes of God. And they see us trusting in His promises. Beloved, it's evangelism. You remember what Peter told us over in chapter 3, verse 15. God says, always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is within you. There's a reason God's put that command right in the middle of 1 Peter. You know, normally people aren't going to ask you about the hope that's within you if everything's going perfectly, but when you're in the hard spot and you're still loving God and you're still honoring God, you're still worshiping God, you're still obeying God, you're still praising God, people are going to ask you, what is this hope that you have? People are supposed to be asking, beloved. People are supposed to be asking us, what is this hope that we have? Of course our lives make no sense to unbelievers. Of course they don't understand us. Because when the persecution comes, we, we give a blessing and we give a witness. This is what God has called us to do. The pseudo-Christian and the unbeliever don't understand that kind of love and commitment to Jesus Christ. So if, we, if we're deeply rooted in His Word, if we see things from God's perspective, if we're thinking God's thoughts, if we're taking the long view, if we are pointing at the beam of seat, we can genuinely rejoice in our suffering. I like the way Eugene Peterson paraphrases verse 12 and 13. He says it like this, Friends, when life gets really difficult, don't jump to the conclusion that God isn't on the job. Instead, be glad that you are in the very thick of what Christ experienced. This is spiritual refining for you with glory just around the corner. ratio can you hit the AC? Thanks. So did you notice at the end of verse 14, the end of verse 14 in the trial, we are blessed. Why? Because the Spirit of God rests Upon you. The Spirit of God rests upon His people. This is one of my favorite things to say to you. I've already said it uh, once already, maybe twice already in the trial, God comes to His people. We understand that. I won't belabor that point. The Spirit of God is with us. The Spirit of God is with us. Don't be afraid. Don't be intimidated. The Spirit of God is with you. Do you believe it? The apostles believed it. That's why there's a book called Acts. They believed it. And they went out in the world and they made Jesus famous. And that's what you're supposed to do. In your orbit, whatever your orbit is, you make Jesus famous. God expects you to go out in the world and act. And sometimes we wonder, can we do it? If, if it gets really tough, if the persecution is physical, if there's the prospect of, of imprisonment or, or even worse, death. Could we stand? Yes, you can, because your God is God. You know? You can stand. Your God is God. He says, I'll be with you. The problem is, you know, do we really believe it? Do we believe he'll come through? You know that great illustration that Cory Tim Boom's father gave to her. She was about to uh, you know, she was worried about facing the brutality of the Germans and her father gave her a beautiful illustration. You remember? <laughs> He said, Corey, now, when you're going to go on a trip, do I give you your train ticket four days before or right before you get on the train? And she said, Daddy, you give it to me right before I get on the train. And he said, Corey, when you need it, God will give you what you need. Listen, if you believe that, beloved, you don't ever have to be afraid in the world. (laughs) Man, you can go be Paul, right? You can go be the Apostle Paul out there. If you actually believe God's going to give you everything you need in the, in the trial, Paul says it in 2 Timothy 4.17. He says, All have deserted me, but the Lord stood with me and He strengthened me. you got to love it. Verse 15, By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a trouble, troublesome meddler. I'm not exactly sure what a troublesome meddler is. I didn't spend any time looking at that. Obviously, the point is that suffering because of sin or for doing what is wrong is of no value. We've talked about this over in chapter 2 and chapter 3, so I'm not going to develop that point again. The point here is simply this. Don't suffer because of sin. Suffer because you're a Christian. Suffer because you're doing righteousness. Suffer because you're giving a witness. Suffer because you're making much of Jesus out in a world that hates Him. This is why the Christians suffer. The world. Jesus said it. I bet I... Shared it with you five times as we've gone through this, through this series. Jesus said they hated me, and they're going to throw you a party, right? They hated me, and they will hate you. This is the word of God. Verses seventeen and eighteen. Verses seventeen and eighteen. My papers are blowing. Here we go. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the Gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous are saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? What is Peter saying? Simply this. In the trial, uh, in the persecution, God will purify... His church. God means for us to understand that this judgment of the church is not unto condemnation, but it's unto salvation. Uh, Regarding believers, God is purifying uh, the church with His love. Regarding unbelievers in the church, as we know there are many tares in the church, Uh, universal, we understand that. God will remove the tares. Regarding unbelievers in the world at large, God will... Punish them with His wrath. God says, I will separate the sheep and the goats. God will do this in His house. To the believer, we understand what Hebrews 12 says. That God has loved us like a father and He disciplines us like a father. We understand when this judgment or when this cleansing comes upon the church or comes upon us individually, we understand that He loves us and He is disciplining us. That we may share in His holiness as Hebrews 12 says. And verse 18 says it clearly. It's not easy. It's not easy to be a Christian. There are difficulties. Beloved, we are saved by grace, but what does Jesus say? Obviously, we are saved by grace alone. Obviously. We get that. But what does Jesus say? Pick up your cross. There are difficulties. (laughs) There are risks. There are costs. And I know many places places in the world the Gospel is presented and these things are never talked about. But if we're going to have integrity with the Word of God, we must talk about these things. God says there will be difficulties and the text says, but what of the godless man? I'll just quote to you from Second Thessalonians 1, 7-9. There are many places I could go in the Bible. Let me just read it to you. The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and do not obey the Gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Do you see what God is saying to us tonight regarding our suffering. The first thing I want you to see, verse 12, we're to expect it. Verse 13, we're to rejoice in it. Verse 17, we are to understand it. We need to understand what God is doing when the persecution comes, when we are in the midst of the hard place. Verse 19 is kind of a summation to all of First Peter as far as I'm concerned. Therefore, let those who... Um, Let those also who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to the faithful Creator in doing what is right. We understand that if we suffer for doing what is right, for being Christ's witnesses, for being His disciples, this suffering, it's according to the will of God. We understand that He is a sovereign God. Nothing comes to the believer that has not come through the hands of God. We know our Bibles. We know our God. We know our call. We will suffer if we are Christians. We will. So I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. We understand that the sparrow doesn't fall to the ground apart from the will of God. If I'm in the midst of a trial, it's the will of God. I'm supposed to stand and give witness. That those around me would see the sufficiency and the beauty and the desirability of Jesus. So what do we do when the hard day comes? We, we complain. We wring our hands. We feel sorry for ourselves. We get a pout going. We worry. We question God's love and goodness, right? No, we entrust ourselves to God. Verse 19. If you don't remember anything else about 1 Peter, there it is. Entrust yourselves to a faithful Creator. So what is God's last word to His people? We're supposed, let's just do it again. Regarding suffering and persecution, we're supposed to expect it, verse 12. We're supposed to rejoice in it, verse 13. We're supposed to understand it, verse 17. And we're supposed to trust God, verse 19. God says, trust me. This is the ultimate command in 1 Peter. If it's hard in your life, if persecution has entered into your life, trust me. God says, trust me. It's huge. If we really know and trust God, we understand that it will change everything in our life. It will change our life for sure. It might even change our death. Our lives won't make sense to unbelievers. We understand that lukewarm Christianity is not an option. And we simply can't live small anymore. we got to do acts. <laughs> We've got to do acts. Try and stop me from doing acts, right? I mean, in my mind, this is the attitude of a born-again, spirit-filled Christian. You try to stop me from doing acts. You try to stop me from making much of Jesus in the world. If we've really met Jesus Christ, acts are not only unavoidable, they are irrepressible. We cannot not give ourselves away to Him. And that's what the guy dressed in white over here is going to do tonight. He's already made the transaction in his heart, but symbolically, he's saying, I love Jesus with all of my life. So let me just briefly mention a couple things about baptism. We are a non-denominational church, so this is all we do. We don't really care what denominations say. They may say some good things. But many of them say things that aren't in here. and So we don't pay any attention to that. But let me just tell you what this church does with respect to baptism. First of all, it's an act of obedience. It's simply an act of obedience. It's only for those who have been born again, have believed the Gospel, have repented of their sin, and come to Christ surrendering to Him as Lord. These are the only people that should be baptized. It's believer's baptism. Baptism does not save. There is no mystical power in the water. It does not save. It is not salvific. It conveys no grace to the one who engages in the ordinance. It's an outward symbol of an inward reality. It's an outward celebration of what God has done in our hearts. Baptism does not save. God saves. The Greek word translated baptize is the word baptizo. It means to submerge, immerse, dip, and plunge. This is what I'm going to do with Tez in a few minutes. I'm going to submerge him, and I'm going to dip him, and I'm going to plunge him. Why? Why? Because that's our our denominational preference? No, because that's clearly what's happening on the pages of Scripture. That's why we do it. It's clearly what's being described and what can be seen on the pages of Scripture. We're real simple. We just do this. So, some here may have never repented of their sins and professed faith in Jesus. I exhort you to to repent and believe tonight. Some, you may be a churchgoer, and you may call yourself a Christian, but you've never really given yourself away to Christ. I exhort you tonight, do that some of you may have been baptized in some denominational way or religious way as i was as a child you may have been baptized as a child but if you have been truly converted since that time if you have been born again john 3 3 since that time i exhort you to follow the biblical pattern which is to believe on christ and be baptized this is always the biblical pattern this is not a Again, a denominational thing. This is a call and command of the living God. Believer's baptism, it's God-ordained, it's God-sanctioned, it's God-commanded. This is the pattern in the Word of God. It's God's idea. This is how God says to do it. So this is how we do it at ICM. Peter said it perfectly as he closed that great sermon in Acts chapter 2. Repent and let each one of you be baptized. In the name of Jesus. So, we're going to do...